Well, welcome, Redemption Arcadia. Let's go ahead and stand. As we begin our time of worship, we're going to read um, part of Psalm 89. Um, and we're going to kind of work our way through this psalm, through different parts of it, um, for our confession and for our call to worship today. So um, let's read this together. O oh Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O oh Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. Amen. Let's worship together this morning. God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant, of faithful promises. And time and time again, you have proven that you do just what you say. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And then my heart will, when you speak a word, it Setting same 
Psalm 89, verses 38 through 48. As we move into our time of confession, we reflect. Um, we read first that God is holy and He is great and He is to be exalted. He is faithful. Um, but now let's read um, this confession together. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled His crown in the dust. You have breached all His walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah, how long, O Lord, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. We read that perspective of David as he's crying out to the Lord um, in confession. Um, so let's sing this song together. Our only response to um, the confession of our sin is to declare God as worthy, as faithful, as holy and good. So let's do that now.
missing day and night. Ashamed, I hear my mocking 
gives, no power, no wisdom, but Dear God, thank you for being the almighty God to all of us and thank you for being able to gather together today and worship together and hear the word. Please bless that we will all stay safe and that we had safe travels here and we all have safe travels home and that we will open our hearts and our ears and our minds to listen to Pastor Frank as he teaches from Nehemiah today. I say these things in God's name, amen. In uh, the fourth through sixth graders, we hope you'll join us um, during the 1045 service next time um, for group discussion there. Um, please greet those around you. Thank you all. I love seeing all of your smiling faces and seeing everyone talk to one another. It brings me great joy. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Emmy Payne. I am the kids ministry coordinator here at Redemption Arcadia. If you're new here, welcome. We're so, so glad that you're here. Um, as a local expression of the family of God, we are seeking to embody the gospel in all of life in the Arcadia area. We are one church with 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Before I continue, uh, we're going to move on to um, a few announcements. So... Um, we're super excited because post-COVID, post-everything, we are um, really growing as a church family, which is wonderful. 
It also means that we need more volunteers in kids' ministry. The kids' ministry person's up here. She's going to throw in a little, we need kids' ministry volunteers. So if you want to hang out with the cutest little babies, because we've got lots of them, come talk to me. We're looking for specifically two more people. And if you want to hang out with fourth through sixth graders and have really cool discussions about the gospel and really, they really take in everything. It's beautiful to see. We're looking for four more people to join that team for fourth through sixth graders. So come see me if that's something that might interest you. If you have questions, let me know. Okay. Announcements. Um, so we're doing women's ministry, of course. We have a social. Um, there will be food. Food. That usually gets people places. Um, and we're super excited. We're, in the month of June, we're collecting diapers for Hope's Women's Center. So if you have those, you can bring them then. You can bring them whenever you're here. Uh, Sundays especially. Size 3 is the one that's most noted. But uh, please, RSVP. It's at 6.30, June 17th, if you want to go and you want food, you should RSVP, it's important. All right, last announcement really quick. Summer Bible study, youth, we're not meeting for youth anymore on the weeks like we normally would at night, but instead they're doing a middle school and a high school Bible study. Uh, high schools on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. and middle schools on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you're interested, you should come. If you have questions, see Trey. Awesome. Can we please stand for the reading of God's word? Thank you. Good morning. The reading for today is from Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah for the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So the reading of the word. Please be seated. Thanks, Ben. Good morning. Arcadia, good to see you all this morning. My name is Frank. If you're new, we're glad that you are here. Thanks for being here. We'd love to get to know you um, after the service in some way, shape, or form. So uh, let us know you're here. Let us know if you have any questions. Um, we are in the book of Nehemiah. And so if you have your Bibles, it'd be really helpful during this series, during any series, really, uh, to go ahead and have your Bibles out and in front of you uh, but turn to chapter 3, because that's actually where we're going to start. 
we're, we're working our way through this book. We're in the second of nine weeks in Nehemiah, taking a break from the Gospel of John. Uh, if you remember last week, we did a, a fairly lengthy but detailed and helpful, I think, introduction into the context of Nehemiah, the historical, social, economic, uh, economical, religious context of it. Uh, and then we did chapter one, and now we look at chapters two and three today. And I'll explain in a minute why we're going to start with chapter 3. But let me just quickly review. So uh, the Jews had been obliterated by Babylon. And tens of thousands of them had been carried off to Babylon for the great Babylonian exile. And in 539, the Persian army came in and sacked Babylon. And so now Persia is in charge. And they have a different way of treating captured people. So uh, the king... Uh, came in and said, the king of Persia came in and said, uh, all you Jews can go back to Jerusalem now and rebuild Jerusalem and, and rebuild your nation. It's going to be much smaller than it was before, but you can go back there and rebuild it. But, oh, by the way, you'll also have to pay taxes. And many of the Jews did go back. Some of the Jews, though, went further east and actually went to the capital city of Persia in, in Susa, and that's where we find Nehemiah. And if you've ever read the Old Testament book of Esther, that's where you would find Esther and Mordecai as well. So many of the Jews did go back, and in 516, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Uh, Ezra, they rebuilt the temple in 516, so it took a couple of decades to rebuild it, Uh, but they did not have a a wall around the city, and they needed a wall around the city, and so for 72 years, they went without a wall, and that was a problem, and so in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, which we looked at last week, in late 445, some men, some Jewish men came to Nehemiah, who was a Jew, working for the Persian king, working in the Persian administration, a Gentile administration, they came to Nehemiah and said, we have a problem. It's been a problem for decades, but we're hoping maybe you can do something about it. And Nehemiah uh, was broken by the news that the wall in Jerusalem was still broken after many, many decades. Uh, But the first thing he does is he prays about it. And so Uh, What we're going to look at today actually takes place in 444 uh, B.C. The problem with no wall there uh, are specifically three threats that the people of God faced from uh, the neighbors around them. Uh, Number one, they just faced physical attacks from their neighbors. Uh, Their neighbors wanted to keep them down. They did not want them to uh, return to their former glory days as Israel or as Judah. So... Um, without a wall, they were vulnerable to attacks. Second of all, they were vulnerable to religious syncretism. In other words, uh, the Jewish faith was under attack from the surrounding culture. The surrounding culture was essentially saying, look, you can have your faith in your Mosaic law and, and, and your writings at home, and just, but just keep them at home. When you're out here in the culture, out here in the world, you need to live by our values and our standards, and you need to acquiesce to who we are. Maybe just combine your faith with what the culture is dictating. That's called uh, syncretism. And so they were under attack and threat from syncretism, which was a big deal to God. He does not want uh, the faith syncretized. And then the third one was what I would call psychological muscle memory. The threat, the simple threat that they had tried so many times in the past to rebuild the wall, but each time they would try, they would be attacked by their neighbors who didn't want them to rebuild the wall, and they would not succeed. And so they had tried it so many times that now they were at a point where all their neighboring, uh, all the neighboring people had to do was threaten them 
to say, don't start building it. You know you can't build it, and they would stop. They would fold. Uh, they would walk away from the project. And so now they didn't even need to attack them. All they needed to do was just remind them of their past failures, psychological muscle memory. So a little bit different today. We've got two chapters to go through. Uh, we're going to start with chapter 3 and then go back to the story in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the setup for chapter 3, but all the theology and application for us today, I would argue, is, is, is more heavily weighted in chapter 2. So chapter 3 is a step-by-step -step description of the building of the wall, and chapter 2 is how we uh, get there. And, and again, I'm just going to say this. I, I think this stuff in Nehemiah that we're going to look at for the next eight weeks is gold, and I really hope you do as well. So... Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built this sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, uh, built. So we're going to see at the end of chapter 2, that Nehemiah calls the people to the project. And these two verses here show us that Eliashib, the high priest, which is helpful, is the first one to respond. He rises up and he gets started with uh, several of the others. And the construction, the reconstruction of the wall starts at the sheep gate. And, oh, it's such a glorious day. I have a map and I get to use my laser pointer. So, anyway, the, the, the sheep gate is at the north end of Jerusalem up here. Okay. And then uh, chapter 3 describes all of the wall and the gates going counterclockwise all the way down to the south and then all the way back up to the north and describes e the work on each of the gates. So the wall itself is stones and then the gates, of course, are made out of uh, wood. And this gate uh, is named the Sheep Gate. It's named the Sheep Gate because it's the closest gate to the temple and so they would bring the sheep in through that gate in order to sacrifice in the temple. So, like I said, and from here, they describe the progress of the wall counterclockwise. Now, just to give you some scale, I talked last week about the wall of Babylon, the Babylonian wall, which had eventually was breached by the Persians. I want to give you some scale here. This wall that you just saw the map of around Jerusalem is one and a half miles long. That's it. Last week, I told you that uh, the uh, wall of Babylon was 80 feet high. Unfortunately, I misremembered that. That was incorrect. The Babylonian wall is 80 feet thick. It's 300 feet high, and it's 56 feet long. This wall here is one and a half miles. I'm sure it's not 300 feet high, and I'm sure it's not 80 feet thick. It's tiny. This is a blip on the screen compared to uh, some of the bigger walls, that, uh, ancient walls that were built. And, and maybe I'm stretching this a little bit, but once again, I just want to show you metaphorically how God seems to work through the tiny, the small, the quiet, the insignificant. This is the story that ends up in the Bible and gets its own Bible book, the rebuilding of a one and a half mile wall. And yet this wall is extraordinarily important to the prosperity and the protection of God's people. But it's tiny. It's just this little thing. Yet God works through that. 
So we are not going to touch on the entirety of chapter 3, but there are some key points to touch on. Look at verses 3 through 5. Uh, the sons of Hesanah built the fish gate. They let its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, and the son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next, I did practice these names, but man, they come at you fast. And next to them, Zadok, the sons of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the, the, the Tekoaites repaired, but the Tekoaites nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Okay, the name of the next gate they describe is the fish gate. Why is it called fish gate? Actually, this isn't that hard. I think it's quite wonderful. Um, this is the gate where the fish merchants would sell fish. Imagine, this is ingenious. They named the gates for their function. This blows my mind. There are no clever hipster names for these gates. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. I would have named the gate Clever Koi, but that name was already taken by a wonderful restaurant in central Phoenix. Okay. This is ingenious. Name the gate for its function. So as you're going around looking at the gates, just think function and you've got it. Okay. Now the other thing about this paragraph is that we see that not quite everyone was on board with this project. Tekoa is a city about eight miles south of Jerusalem. It's still in Judah, and it's still inhabited with Jews. And it appears that the common people of Tekoa were helpful, but not the wealthy and powerful people. Why is that? No reason is given, but speculation is that the people of power and wealth in Tekoa, four different ideas. One, first of all, they didn't think the project would be accomplished anyway, and they resented Nehemiah trying, so why bother helping? So they were part of that psychological muscle memory. Second of all, people have speculated that because the original language in the Hebrew actually insinuates that these guys were lazy, they just didn't feel like doing it. They were just lazy. Third, some people have written that these people felt that working on a wall, doing that labor, it was beneath them because they were nobles and royals. And then fourth, uh, this is the one I actually buy into. Some scholars theorize that they were in cahoots with the coming opposition from Samballat and Tobiah. And so they felt like, it was like trying to decide, I'm reading a book on Lincoln now, it's like trying to decide which side of the Civil War you're going to be on based on who you think is going to win. And they thought that Sam Ballot and Tobiah would win again, and so they actually went into cahoots with them and actually tried to help them and give them money and fund them. Uh, and so they saw no gain for them uh, for Jerusalem being safely walled. So not everyone helped, but most people did. Look at verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So the way that Nehemiah describes it, the people would help rebuild the wall according to several different connections. So if they had a family connection, they might help rebuild the wall because of that. If the, the, a lot of times we're gonna, we would see in chapter 3 that it was the geographical location of their homes in relationship to where the wall was being built. So it was closest to their homes that they would go and help rebuild the wall. Uh, some people just saw it as their civic or religious duty to help go and help rebuild the wall. And then here what we discover is that many of the people would help rebuild their wall according to the guild association. In other words, their union. 
So we, we see here that, that there were goldsmiths and perfumers. In other um, verses, we also hear that the merchants would band together and help to build the wall. So by their guild, by their union, they would get together. And obviously, these guilds or these unions could envision incredible economic benefit to getting this wall finally rebuilt. And so they were willing to pitch in and help. Uh, look at verse 13. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate, and they built it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. I just had to read this verse. I mean, really, dung gate? They, okay, this may be taking this function thing a little bit too far. They could have thought of something a little bit more euphemistic. But in fact, this is the gate that's furthest to the south of the city, so we're about halfway around with the description right now. And as for the name, this is the point in the city of Jerusalem where their ancient, very crude sewer system would converge, and it was also the gate that led out to the city dump. So if you had refuse, you would take it out to the city dump there. So there you have it, practical names for these gates. Now wrapping up chapter 3, 28 through 32. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. See, you see that? And after them, Zadok, the son of Immir, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaleph. We needed to know that it was the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. And so we have the horse gate, we have the goldsmiths and the merchants, and now we're back at the sheep gate. So the question is, how did we get there? And that's chapter 2. So now turn to Chapter 2, that's what we're going to slow down a little bit and work our way through. Remember, Nehemiah had been approached by these guys four months earlier about the wall being broken down, and Nehemiah has been praying uh, about this wall being broken down uh, since that time. So, verses 1 and 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, by the way, for those of you who are old like me, you remember the month of Nisan used to be known as the month of what? That's right. Thank you very much. Dotson. Okay. Uh, you younger people will need to look that up. It's just horrible, awful, cheap humor. Okay. By the way, uh, that, I didn't come up with that. Tom Schrader did. So I'm just, I'm just channeling Schrader's stuff here for you. Okay. So anyway, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that would be uh, 444, 445, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence prior to this for four months. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So Nehemiah, in a sense, is getting called out. So this is four months after chapter 1. This is now the spring of 444. And remember, the anxiety, worry, and tension when he was told about his troubles, uh, the trouble of his people in Jerusalem in chapter 1. And so he prays, and he waits on the Lord in his patience. We talked about this last week. When life sucks, seek God and be patient. Seek God and be patient. Four months go by. Now, I'll just confess to you, and you're probably the same way. When I'm feeling it, 
And I imagine when you're feeling it too, when I'm feeling the pressure and the anxiety of something that's really difficult and hard, it's a stretch to pray, be patient, and wait on the Lord for four days or four hours. And yet he waits for four months and was willing to wait even longer. So Nehemiah is taking wine to the king. This is a routine part of his job. And it says, I had, he said in his journal, I had not been sad in his presence. I had not yet in these four months been sad. So anyone serving the ancient king took their life into their own hands, no matter who they were, even if they were the queen. If they went into the presence of the king and made him uncomfortable or agitated him in any way, if you were sad, if you were upset by something, if you were impatient, if you were indifferent or aloof, if you wanted something from the king, if you spoke without being spoken to first, if you asked the wrong question, if you wore a Los Angeles Lakers jersey in his presence, any of those things could get you whacked. So the king would summarily execute anybody who had bothered him or annoyed him. So think about Esther again. I, I, I said, I'm, I'm going to refer to Esther from time to time in this series, the book of Esther, which happened about 35 years prior to this. So there's some connection between Esther and Nehemiah. Uh, the Persian kings, Artaxerxes, Nehemiah's king, is actually the son of Xerxes, who Esther married. Now, Xerxes had Artaxerxes, his son, by another queen, and so Esther was actually Artaxerxes' stepmother, but she knew Nehemiah. And Nehemiah knew the story of Esther and Mordecai and Haman. And both Esther and Nehemiah had this in common. At one time or another, both of them had to have very difficult and dangerous conversations with their king where they took their life into their own hands. But both also are remembered for doing amazing God work. So there's a huge connection between these two. And by the way, this danger in the presence of the king is one reason why it's been four months since Nehemiah found out about the disaster in Jerusalem. Even as the cupbearer, the king's closest confidant, Nehemiah could not just walk in and tell the king that he needed his help. He couldn't even hint at it. Artaxerxes had to start this conversation. So again, look at verse 2. Nehemiah did not intend to be sad in the presence of the king, but clearly this is a divine appointment. God is ready for this to happen now. Here you go. That's faith not only in God, but also in God's timing, which is usually slower or faster than we would want it to be, depending on the circumstance. So what had happened was Nehemiah had practiced good facial management techniques for four months, but now it's ordained by God that he let his guard down. Those of you who are married know that sometimes it's challenging to practice good facial management techniques for even, again, four days, let alone four hours, but Nehemiah did it for four months. But finally, his guard is let down. And even though Nehemiah is a man of God and his first response to the crisis is to pray, he's still anxious about being skewered, literally. That's the way they would often do these executions. Think about Haman in the book of Esther. He was skewered by a 70-foot um, gallows and then hung up by that 70-foot gallows, which ironically Haman had manufactured for the skewering of Mordecai. So, little ir irony there. And one reason for Nehemiah's anxiety, you look at it, the king's diagnosis is spot on. Understand, this king, this king is not an idiot. He said, you don't have a cold, and I know you don't have the virus. I got the results of your coronavirus test. I know you're not sick, 
So that you, this, you're sad, and you know you shouldn't be sad in my presence because that makes me sad, and I don't want to be sad. I'm the king. I should never have to deal with sadness. Okay? And Nehemiah responds in the moment the very best he can. Look at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Another way of saying that would be, O king, live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, my ancestors' graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? O king, live forever. Uh, The subtitled text to that would be, Boss, I messed up, now I must suck up. But it's also his opportunity now. He recognizes this is it. This is a make-or-break opportunity. So this is Nehemiah's way of saying what Esther said in Esther chapter 4 when she was encouraged by Mordecai to go to Xerxes. Esther finally said, all right, I'm going to go do it. And if, I'm going to go do it, and if I die, I die. That's just the way it is. And I, and I think this is really important to remember because I know Nehemiah knows this story, and he knows what Mordecai told Esther, which eventually got Esther to go to King Xerxes. Mordecai said to Esther, Esther, you've been chosen specifically for this moment to help your people. Therefore, if you do, if you refuse to do the work that has already been ordained, God is going to raise up salvation for his people somewhere else. And the implication is, and you won't get to be a part of this. And that's when Esther says, all right, I'm in. So Nehemiah knows this history, and I believe that he realizes this might be his God-ordained Esther moment. So Nehemiah goes for it. And I think his godly instinct and the Holy Spirit take over in the moment. And he says, King, my people in my home are a mess and it's killing me. And that's why I'm uncontrollably sad. And so the king responds in verses 4 and 5. Then the king said to me, what, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, praise again. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So, man, I'm telling you, Artaxerxes is sharp. He knows how to read between the lines, and he doesn't mince words. He simply says, all right, what do you want? And so the divine opening has been provided. Nehemiah's head is still attached to his body. And maybe he's even been practicing what he would say if this moment ever came. You know, he's been rehearsing this and reciting this. It's his version of our elevator speech. You know, tell me about your plan and the time it takes to ride to my floor. But notice, again, Nehemiah prays before he dives in. So Nehemiah's standard operating procedure seems to be pray first and then everything else. Pray first and then everything else. And it's not just prayer, but like I said, prayer first. The great Old Testament scholar H.G.M. Williamson writes this. It's a great observation. Nehemiah demonstrates a wonderful balance between confidence in the sovereignty of God with prayer as a proper response and balancing that with human responsibility to plan and participate. And then in verse 5, there it is. Nehemiah's request is what gets everything moving. And the king gives a favorable response in verse 6. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I, had been, when I had given him a time. It's a favorable response. But the king does ask legitimate questions. Again, he's sharp. He says, all right, so how long are you going to be gone? How long will this take? When are you going to return? The implication, of course, which we've been saying all along, is that Nehemiah is very valuable to Artaxerxes in his reign. So he's saying, I'm gonna, I hope you'll do this, Nehemiah, in a timely manner so that you can come back 
soon and we can resume playing code names together with my wife who's sitting next to me. And apparently, Nehemiah gave the type of answers the king needed to feel good about letting him go, but there's more. Look at verses 7 through 9. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. I love this man. Artaxerxes is a Gentile. He's, a, he's not Jewish, and yet God uses him to help his people, just as he used Xerxes, his father, in the book of Esther, a Gentile, to help God's people. I love that. And what Nehemiah, what Nehemiah asked for is no small favor whatsoever. This was the biggest part of the ask, to be honest with you. He needs the proper authoritative papers to pass through every possible checkpoint in this 1,100-mile journey where he could be harassed or turned back. Everyone along the way was loyal to the king, but not everybody liked Jewish people. And so he needed these proper papers, and he needed all the free raw materials. that he, that, that They just didn't have any resources. So he's asking the king, can I have the wood from your forest to be able to build the gates as well? And we're told by Nehemiah, the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. That's an important point. Nehemiah realizes that God is with him and God is at work and this is God's project. And Nehemiah is just being used by him. It's similar to the Joseph story in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. If you've never read that story, please do so. It's magnificent. And Joseph uh, gets in and out of trouble all because God was with him. We're reminded all the way through that story that the Lord was with Joseph. And he ends up becoming one of the greatest leaders that we see in the Old Testament, just like Nehemiah. And then verse 9, it's still not quite over. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave, the king, I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So the king also, also gave Nehemiah a military escort. And this was a battalion. This was no small thing. This was a show of power and authority from the king that said non-verbally, leave Nehemiah alone. And we need to understand that Susa to Jerusalem was 1,100 miles. This is a three-month journey over land, travel through some fairly hostile areas. This escort from the king was a gift to Nehemiah. But then in verse 10, we get a preview of the trouble that's going to come, which we'll see next week in chapter 4, which, by the way, this trouble should not be surprising. Look at verse 10. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They were displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Sanballat, he's... The governor of Samaria, which is the nation just north of, of uh, Jerusalem and Judah. And already now, for a couple hundred years, uh, the Samaritans and the Jews did not have good relationships. They did not like each other. I would use the word hate, even, so he's not friendly. He also has a really weird name, which is kind of odd. Tobiah is his deputy of sorts. I like the name Tobiah. That's kind of a cool name. But that last little bit there, 
I've discovered that one of the reasons Jesus is not liked or especially appreciated in our world is simply because he came to seek the true welfare of others, not the imagined or fantasized welfare of others. He came to seek the true welfare of others. And that's just true of the gospel. When you stand up in the power of the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ in you, and you actually do something that seeks the welfare of other people, in other words, you show up somewhere, or you say something that the culture isn't going to like, and you actually do something rather than just talking about it, you're going to encounter opposition. That's just the way it is. So what happens when Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem? I'm very glad you asked. Look at verses 11 through 16. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night. I and a few men with me And I told no one what my God had put into my heart for me to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that uh, that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley, inspected the wall... I turned back and entered the valley by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. I hadn't told them anything about it. So why the secrecy? I mean, he goes at night. Why, why not telling anybody? There, there are two reasons, two really important reasons. First of all, Jerusalem is surrounded by enemies who loathed the idea of a wall ever being built around Jerusalem. So he's trying to keep the project on the down low as long as possible. Eventually they're going to know, but he wants to at least get the planning and the recruiting done before they find out. But second of all, he doesn't tell his own people. He doesn't tell his own people. Why is that? Well, as soon as he announces and all the locals find out, Nehemiah is going to be inundated and besieged with unrequested advice, counsel, and suggestions on how to do this project by people who haven't been able to do it. (laughs) Or he'll be besieged with counsel and suggestions and advice on how not to bother starting. Both. He'll get both. You know, every project that is difficult and yet worth doing We'll always have people who want to tell others how to do it or how not to do it, but who are rarely interested in the doing. Haven't you found that in the marketplace? Haven't you, those of you in school who have to work on group projects, I know you have found that to be true. Okay? So two thoughts here. A lot of people want to treat God the same way, I found. They see themselves as advisors to or counselors for God, but very rarely are they willing to listen to God. Fascinating. And then here's the second thought. It's a little inside baseball for you. One of the biggest challenges, and by the way, this is not me. This was talked about at length a couple of weeks ago at the Preaching Collective by all the lead pastors. Okay? One of the biggest challenges in church is not necessarily 
the culture's resistance to the church, but the church's resistance to the church. We're so determined to get after the culture. And yeah, okay, I'd like to redeem the culture too. Count me down as a yes for that. But man, some of the most difficult resistance that churches encounter comes from the church. Comes from the church itself. And that's what Nehemiah had to contend with. Sure, he's going to have to contend with Sam Ballad and Tobiah, but he's also going to have to contend with his own people. And now finally, when God is ready, when Nehemiah is fully prepared, they have a plan, and Nehemiah goes to the people. So this is verses 17 through 20. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, by the way, for the last more than 70 years. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So he's saying, the outsiders are bothering us and keeping us from being prosperous and keeping us from being God's people and keeping us from being a community of faith. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But... When Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem, now there's a new dude involved, the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah rallies the people and they dig in. But as always happens when God is at work, opposition will come. And this sets us up for an entire chapter about opposition in chapter 4 next week. Notice there's ancient trash talking. They also accuse uh, Nehemiah. And by the way, that trash talking is geared towards their psychological muscle memory. What is this you're doing? You're never going to succeed. And there's more of that next, next week. They just, you're never going to succeed. So they're hoping that... Nehemiah will just fold like everybody else has folded in the last 70 years. They're hoping for that. This last week, Wednesday, at the Preaching Collective, you know, I'm the oldest pastor in that room. We're all young guys. And all the young guys started having a conversation about how excited they are about the Phoenix Suns. It's just great. They're going to go to the finals. It's going to be against the Nets. Steve Nash is coming in. Ah, what if they win the NBA championship? And I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to stand up. <laughs> I've, I've been around the Suns since their inception. I suffered through the loss of the coin flip. We could have had Lou Alcindor, who is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We lost. I was around in 1976 when we lost in six to the Celtics. The NBA officials just handed the Celtics that championship to them. <laughs> I was around in 1981 when they had the best record in the NBA and they lost in the first round of the playoffs. I was around in 2000, sorry, 1993 when they lost to Michael in the finals and they should have won that series. I was around in 2006, and honestly, that was the last time I ever really cared. <laughs> so I had to rise up and tell them, guys, I know the DNA of the sons. 
they're going to break your heart. They will break your heart. Some of you are dancing in the aisles now because they're up three to nothing against Denver. Watch out. First team to ever come back from a 3-0 deficit. And if not them, it'll be the Utah Jazz. They'll break your heart. And I told them that. And they've been calling me Sam Ballot ever since. <laughs> now, I'm not hoping that the suns will fold. I'm, I'm just protecting my own heart. That's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing. But Sam Ballot also does something else. He, he accuses Nehemiah of rebelling against the king. Building a wall could be considered an act of defiance. They don't seem to understand. Nehemiah, Tobiah, Geshem. They don't seem to understand that the king gave his approval. Here's what I love about this, though. Nehemiah doesn't answer with the papers of his authority from the king. That's what I would have done. Well, check this out. That's what I would have done. You don't know what you're talking about. That's me and my flesh. But it's actually the wrong response. Nehemiah just goes right to God. He says, you guys aren't going to be able to stop this because God is with us. And this is God's people doing this. And Sam Ballot's going, hmm, never heard that before. We might actually have to try to do something. God. That's Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul writes, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, we cannot afford to live in a spirit of fear or foolishness. That spirit of fear and foolishness lasted 72 years for the Jews in Jerusalem. Nehemiah refuses to live in a spirit of fear and he constantly seeks the wisdom of God even as he is leading what seems to be an absolutely impossible project. Because God. That's all. You and I who are followers of Jesus, the resurrected Christ is in us and his Holy Spirit fills us. And especially in the next, I'll just tell you, in the next upcoming few years, the church cannot afford to live in a spirit of fear or delve into our own human foolishness if we think that we are going to sustain in a world that is increasingly hostile to us. Oh, Frank, you're overreacting. I don't think so. I don't think so. Imagine instead if the church lived in a spirit of love and courage and perseverance. And that's what we're going to need. Where do we get that love, courage, and perseverance? It's on the cross. It's on the cross. Jesus went as the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb to atone for our sin, yes. But he also went, we are going to be told later on in the uh, Gospel of John, he also went as an example for us to understand how to live. Paul tells us the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. He is an example also of how to live of how to humbly submit to the Lord in His wisdom and His will. And then that's what gives us courage and power and hope and understanding. It's the cross where we need to look. We need to remember that the gospel both saves sinners and empowers sinners. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word and its truth.
We thank you that you have recorded through the hands of Nehemiah and Ezra and, and somebody else. We don't know who, but we're thankful for him. These words have been recorded for us so that we can learn and grow by them. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us that courage and hope and perseverance that we're going to need, that we always need. Whether it's here in the church or in the marketplace or in our families or in our neighborhoods, God, let us live as your people and let us do it with joy and gratitude. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to try to slow us down just a little bit, if I could. We're going to sing one more song together. We have one more song to do. Um, And we're going to take communion together. But I'd like you to just, before you take the communion, spend a minute or two as, as the band plays softly just to pray. And think about God's word. Think about the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life and what he's doing in your life. Pray pray about maybe some things that you need to be repairing in your own life and how God can help you do that. And then when you're ready, the little kit, if you don't have a communion kit, go to the lobby now and grab one. Uh, Open it up. You take the wafer. Jesus said at the Last Supper, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body on the cross, broken for us for our sin. Take the wafer and eat it. And thank God for Jesus. And then when you're ready, take the little cup of the juice. Jesus said of that, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood poured out for your sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and drink. This is the Lord's Supper. It's a sacrament. It's a It's a time where we confess our need for Christ, but also celebrate that we have Christ. So let's move through this with purpose and diligence and prayerfulness. As we take some time to reflect and then sing this last song, at some point, you don't have to feel pressured, but at some point then, during that last song, you could stand and and we'll finish. Those of you who can stand, we'll stand and we'll sing the rest of the song together.
Amen. It's been a joy worshiping with you all, learning from God's word together. Let me read this over us as a prayer as we make our way out. From the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, remember that you're beloved by God. And because of that status before God, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, church, and knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.